0: cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show.
1: You know, one of the interesting things about like the whole pedagogy of writing is that the way writing is taught is often very different from the way it's done. Mm-hmm. You know, And you get books about You know how to be a writer and stuff like that and it's like well here's a chapter on character and here's one on conflict and that sort of thing and and i don't think anyone at least not no one who's who's uh really good at their craft thinks of doing the work that way
0: hey it's ryan and welcome to the prolific creator where we reflect on life and art and see what sticks And today, I am so excited to have Mark Bertrand on the show. Mark is a crime mystery novelist, and he also happens to be a pastor. And today, we have a great conversation about how to juggle two different vocations. Uh, And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have Mark on the show, was that for a lot of us, we have day jobs, we have other ways to support ourselves, and our entire existence isn't based on our creations, whether we're starting businesses, whether we're pastoring churches, whether we're writing books, whatever we're making, whatever we're doing, uh, we have other things going on to support that. And I I really love our conversation around that, uh, because for some of us, that's a choice. It's not by necessarily default, um, but it's a choice to say, I I really do enjoy, uh, my one calling, my one mode of employment, and I want to keep Creating and keep making stuff and doing things, but I'm not going to put all my all the pressure on the creation and the art. Um, and I've had a lot of conversations with friends over the years, and even in my old podcast where we talked about that. And a lot of people they ended up going back into employment um, because they wanted to be full time writers or full time painters or full time dancers or full time actors or whatever. Um, but realized it just puts a lot of pressure on the family, puts a lot of pressure on you to create, and sometimes. Uh, it's good to have that, that support. And so so we talk about that um, and also just what it looks like to juggle family and, and different creative outlets and, and what that looks like. And so I'm really excited to share that with you today. And I also wanted to make note, uh, as I did last week, that this is part of an older project. I did some interviews on an old podcast project that didn't really take off. And I was trying to find some Interviews that I really enjoyed that I feel will fit well with the prolific creator. And this one fits really well. So if you hear reference to the common grace project, that's what the old project was. Don't be alarmed by that. Uh, we're still on the prolific creator, but I just want to make note of that. I did this interview a few months back. And so um, hopefully it'll be relevant to those that are gathering in this community and putting good art out in the world. And uh, that can take on different shapes and sizes, whether you're writing or painting or starting businesses or nonprofits or leading churches or w- w- whatever you're doing. Uh, w- we want to get your, your message out into the world. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with Mark Bertrand. Welcome everyone to the Common Grace Project podcast, which is a mouthful. Uh, so thankful today to have Mark Bertrand on the show, and uh, Mark has very similar uh, taste background as me—a uh, pastor, but also a writer as well. And as you know, we're always trying to find interesting people doing interesting things, and I think Mark uh, fits the bill. Uh, so I'm so glad that Mark had come on the show. And Mark, why don't you just say hello and tell us a couple things that uh, nobody would know about you other than your closest friends?
1: Well, I mean, that presupposes that I have friends, so. <laughs> I'll have to bluff my way through, but but first of all, hello. It's it's great to be here, and uh, I always enjoy having conversations like this. Um, yeah, I guess the the weirdest thing about me isn't so secret anymore, but it's that that odd combination of writing uh, novels and being in pastoral ministry, but uh, but especially writing crime novels, which people often find a little strange to to uh I mean obviously a lot of people have thought of interesting ways to to kill off their pastor, usually <laughs> around the forty five minute mark kind of sermon, but it doesn 't typically go the other way around, and so that 's probably my i don 't know, know if it 's a claim to fame, but uh I guess another odd thing is for years um, i 've been writing about uh, the design of Bibles. So long before I was ever in pastoral ministry, I, I've been writing about how Bibles are designed, how they're produced, and that sort of thing, kind of the publishing side of that. And so it's uh, if people have heard of me, and most have not, but occasionally it happens, it'll be either for novels or for this writing on Bible design, yeah, that,
0: that that's definitely something I want to dig into in a, in a few minutes because I think that's really fascinating about the the Bible di- design blog that you you have and uh, no, I I'm I'm uh, fascinated by that as well uh, and I think that speaks to even just how we read books or things on paper and whether it's a Bible or not, but uh, sure, yeah, so um so yeah, that that's interesting because I I think uh, I can I can attest to different responses when you write you know, fiction, it's like, well, why would you even write fiction? You're, you know, a Christian and you're a pastor and, you know, you should write nonfiction and spiritual books and books on prayer. And uh, which you've, you've written some of those as, as well. Uh, but you know, how do they all fit together? And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, but, but let's kind of get into a little bit of you and your story, because obviously you have an origin story. You came from somewhere. I think I read you, you're originally from the South, but now you're in uh, South Dakota, which is not the South. Um, if no. you haven't, haven't realized yet, hopefully you have, um, and I, I'm actually from the West coast and I'm in, in the Midwest now in Kansas city. So I okay, can yeah. pain in some ways, but, um, maybe for different reasons uh but yeah tell us a little bit of your story like what were some of your early influences how did you kind of get into writing and um you know crime novels is that kind of what you're you've always been into or where, where did that all begin
1: yeah so i i was born in louisiana grew up in louisiana and uh i guess so close to the gulf coast that if you had been born any farther south than i was you would have drowned in the gulf of mexico mm-hmm. and so that's a you know a, a different world it's it's very uh still influenced by I guess the French past and that sort of thing so my part of Louisiana though is is closer to the Texas border so when you think of uh New Orleans and all that kind of thing it's the other side of the state so I, I always think we had all of the deficits of living in Louisiana and none of the benefits <laughs> that went along with it but uh, it's it's a uh, It's an interesting place, and an interesting place, I think, to to grow up with, let's say, you know, writerly proclivities. You know, there's a lot of uh, writers who've come out of the South, and there's a kind of, uh, I I probably like a, let's say, a sublimated guilt that animates a lot of that writing. And so I, I can now look back and appreciate that environment. Although when I lived there, I didn't feel that way. So, you know, my crime novels are set in Houston, which is another place I, I, uh, lived in and, and did my master's, uh, MFA in creative writing at university of Houston and hated every minute, not, not of the program, but of being in Houston. And so eventually, um, I left. And because my wife is from South Dakota, she always wanted to move back. And as far as I knew, it was just a frozen wasteland, but you know, out of love, I was willing to move to a frozen wasteland and it's actually not that, you know, well, I'll say it's a frozen wasteland during winter, which is from November to about April or May, but then for, you know, a few months in between, it's actually really nice. So, um, and it's, it's secluded enough to where you can get plenty of writing done. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah, and I think it's interesting how place kind of dictates a lot of how what you write and why you write. Uh, you know, I mean, you're in a rich, you were in a rich reservoir of, you know, Christian fiction writers uh in the south i mean take your take your pick it's almost like a rite of passage um i mean it's funny i even think of like john grisham you know he he writes you know in the south he's from the south he still lives in the south you know, and yeah. most, most of his novel, novels take place there so it feels like you've been there it feels like you can get a taste of the of the culture uh not, not that it's a, a dark place as if there's any other you know place on the world that's not dark but but in the sense it has its own flavor it has its own feel to it um, yeah almost like the climate you know a sweatiness to it you know in a in a metaphorical way you know
1: definitely yeah. and and yeah. a literal way as well but sure yeah i mean that's you know like i said my crime novels are set in houston and i i never wanted to write about houston when i lived in houston it was after i left and sort of processed uh, some of those experiences that you know for me that place was a kind of um, you know, like an everyday dystopia in the sense that like, whatever you're worried about, about the American future in Houston, we do that to the the 10th degree and we're not worried about it. So if you're concerned about, you know, suburban sprawl or, you know, any kind of, you know, the absence of zoning and, and all the craziness um, when, when you're in Houston, it's kind of embraced. And so, as a, I think a lot of writers use place as a kind of a metaphor, you know, or, or a, an entry point into a certain set of feelings or ideas or impressions, that sort of thing. And so, for me, that place really like lends itself to an exploration of of the modern condition and a lot of our our concerns. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I find it interesting. Of late, it, it seems a lot. I mean, if you read crime novels or thriller type novels, uh, sure. you know the, t- the typical standard is L.A., New York. Uh yeah. But I'm starting to see a lot of small town uh, novels that are really hitting pretty big. There's one. Um, oh shoot, I'm forgetting the title, but it was set in, I think, outside Austin, but it's a small little town. And uh, there's a um, some of the books I write are actually in small town Missouri, kind of a fictional town. But mm-hmm. there's there's something to that that kind of because I I didn't really grow up that way you're used to urban you know everybody kind of sticks to themselves and you know sin is very obvious and crime is very obvious but when you're in a small place you know it's different there's like this underbelly that nobody wants to talk about but it's there because it's it's everywhere Um, and I think some of the shows and some of the books that have come out lately in the small town to me have this kind of creepier feel to them or a, <laughs> a more intense weight to them, because it's not what you, you typically think of when you think of an urban center or,
1: yeah. You know, well, these- and I think, you know, so for me, I think about, uh, so James Lee Burke, you know, for, mm-hmm. for years has been writing, you know, let's say like, like half of his novels set in Louisiana, the other half up in Montana. And, and as someone who grew up in Louisiana, interestingly now a lot of my thinking about that place has been influenced by his writing about it you know and and kind of the the way he has made it his own now it's 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 not the real place you know it's it's a sort of fictionalized version kind of the same way that you know flannery o'connor was was asked you know if, if her writing about the south was was accurate and I think she acknowledged that it's not you know nearly as crazy in real life as as <laughs> the, the heightened use that she made of it in her fiction would suggest, but that's what we do with place you know and I think you know you mentioned small towns i mean a lot of these small towns in fiction don't actually exist mm-hmm. and and are sort of manufactured for that reason that they lend themselves to exploring certain aspects of, you know, human life and that sort of thing and and honestly even when they do exist the author transforms them in a way that's you know it's recognizable but it's definitely his own take you know i'm thinking of of like james joyce's dublin and you know you can literally walk the streets and and recreate the journey of his characters but there's also a sense in which the place he was writing about you know had stopped existing years before he was writing about it and it was existed mainly in his head and so it's uh i would say in a much smaller way than than with james joyce you know that people who've lived in houston for years and, and read my novels will recognize places but will also pick up on the fact that you know, this isn't exactly the city as it truly is. You know, you've you've mm-hmm. kind of um, bent it to your will. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and and I think that's uh, I think that's the fun of writing is is to kind of take a take a seed of a actual place and then kind of make it your own. And and you know, you have this you know, free lane to just do whatever you want. I mean, right. That's the the beauty of fiction. It's to say, Hey, I want I want this store to be there. I want this person to live there, even though that's not real or, you know, right. Um, And and that's, I think that's probably one of the reasons we like to write, but uh, so, so past you're a pastor, Mm -hmm. but you have an MFA, which is a master's in fine arts, I believe uh, in in writing. Um, So tell, take us on a little bit of that journey because I know you haven't been a pastor forever, um, no no and, and uh, is, anyone is but but you had a, a different kind of path to i mean you're writing novels and got into ministry yes. history a little later so tell take us how 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 did all this evolve
1: well, i would say if i had known the direction life would take i would have avoided it you know I mean, if if i could have avoided pastoral ministry i would have done it but uh, god had other ideas but yeah so you know i always intended to be a writer growing up and so you know that was my focus and after I got out of college um, pretty soon after that you know you start applying to MFA programs and that sort of thing and so I I got into the University of Houston MFA program and I think that was uh, you know kind of my my what's the word like you grow up with with a dream of what you're going to be and at a certain point there's an adjustment to reality you know kind of in the same way that uh, you know people grow up fantasizing about marriage you know and, and imagining sort of an ideal partner and that sort of thing and then they actually get married and there's this phase of of adjusting to reality and if you do that successfully Um, you know, that's great. But if you hold on to those fantasies, then, you know, a lot of ill can result. And so for me, grad school was kind of a place of making those adjustments, of figuring out uh, what kind of work as a writer I was really interested in and and suited to. And so um, I don't know if it's true today, but but in the early 90s, uh, an MFA program in creative writing was very, academic, and very focused on literary fiction. So, you know, you didn't go into a program like that saying, well, I I would like to write, you know, crime thrillers or something like that. And, and so, for me, that was always kind of a big, you know, professional and, and personal struggle. Like, what, what is the the work I feel called to do? What kind of books do I want to write? That sort of thing. And so, I eventually kind of found this um, I, you know, let's say like a commercial kind of fiction, but executed in a literary kind of way, um, that that seemed to to, I guess, be my thing. And so uh, that was my I guess, discovery by the end of that process that that was the kind of work I was interested in and and I was not, I never thought of, you know, crime fiction necessarily being, the thing that, that I would focus on. Uh, but what happened was I had a lot of theological interests. You know, one of the things in, in, in our MFA program they, they made you do was take two semesters of what they called modern thought. And it, it could have just as easily been called Intro to Nietzsche because that's kind of what it was. and And it left me with the idea that I needed to explore, let's say, the theological or philosophical underpinnings of like my own perspective if I was going to work those out in my fiction. And so um, after I finished my MFA, I I ended up in seminary, uh, not because I was planning to go into ministry or anything like that, but just because I was wanting to uh, delve into theology and understand, let's say uh, Christian ideas more profoundly than I felt I had so that I could explore them in my work, not, not in any sort of like a preachy or propagandistic way, but just kind of in in a philosophical way in in, in the sense that, you know, any artist, you know, is, is kind of channeling those influences. And, um, and so that's what I did. And it, it kind of in the, suggesting to me that crime fiction was an area where a lot of the stuff I was interested in philosophically was very relevant, you know? So people associate certain genres with certain kinds of ideas. So like, I think fantasy, at least like in a classical sense, seems like a good genre for exploring the fight between good and evil or something like that. And for me, crime fiction, especially like, like more serious crime fiction was a really interesting genre for exploring um, l- like human sin and depravity and, and the, the distance between our ideals and how we actually live. And, and, and in an interesting way, our, let's say, like our moral relativism is sometimes suspended in areas that crime fiction deals with. So, you know, we still act like murders bad objectively. You know, we, we don't treat homicide as, as something that, that may sometimes be good or bad and you can't really judge. We, we tend to have, you know, very old-fashioned moral instincts about these areas. And that can be interesting when... Your moral instincts run into conflict with your philosophical you know commitments, and so I just found myself really drawn to it, reading a lot of crime fiction and and just started writing it in my own kind of take on it
0: well it, you uh, you wrote that article I think it's mentioned on your your website um, i forget forgetting the title I should have wrote it down, but um, you know the one uh, yeah where you kind of delve into kind of crime fiction. You know depravity and just understanding kind of yeah uh, you know what uh, we, we can't just make these nice neat distinctions and and how we're all kind of a click away from like maybe we're not going to be mur- we're not going to murder someone but you know sin and evil are in all of us so how do we deal with that and and yet you kind of argue that that a lot of these books really get into that it's the everyday man that is dealing with these internal struggles, you know, and the fight of good and evil, even in themselves. And, you know, how do we, how do we work that out?
1: Right. Uh, you if, know, in, in crime fiction. So there, there's, there's a good tradition of like ecclesiastical types being interested in, in mysteries, but usually the, the way that that's explained is like the classic mystery story and you think of like Agatha Christie and stuff like that. You have a, community that, that, you know, has a certain uh, Edenic quality to it. Murder enters in like the serpent in the garden and disrupts the order of things. And then a truth seeking, you know, detective, whether a policeman or an amateur or whatever enters in and restores order by revealing who the criminal is. That's, and that's kind of the critical explanation for why, you know, a religious person would find stories like this entertaining or, or affirming or something like that. And maybe that's the case, but that kind of story was never really what attracted me. I was much more attracted to uh, what we might think of as, as like the hard boiled detective film noir kind of stuff, which operates in a very different way. You know, if you look at, um, even like classic, like Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, those kind of stories. Um, it's a very different world than the classic, you know, detective operates in, you know, Sherlock Holmes isn't concerned about the police being a corrupt and potentially e- evil force. Uh, they're, they're bumbling idiots, but, you know, they mean well whereas in this other kind of fiction there's this acknowledgement the system is corrupt that the the ones who are meant to be on the side of law and order are often perpetuating you know disorder behind the scenes and the protagonist is often pitted against those agents as well as like the murderer or whatever and so for me that suggests like a very theological, it's a very Augustinian view of the world where it isn't a Manichean struggle between good and evil, but there is that fault line that Solzhenitsyn talks about in the heart of every person and that even the, the heroes are corrupt and, and have to fight against their own corruption. And I found that just profoundly... Uh, worthwhile you know to 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 write about and to think about and so in 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 my novels that's that 's really what i did and interestingly that that was uh I was doing a a talk somewhere and and the interviewer had read my crime novels and and kind of turned to me and said you know the, your novels are very Augustinian and said it and yeah, you know, as if it were a criticism, and <laughs> just laughed, and I was like, "Okay, you say it like it's a bad thing, but I would put that blurb on the cover if I could." Right.
0: Well, it's interesting. Something I picked up you saying it. It's kind of like the Agatha Christie version of the crime novel or the detective novel is, you know, here's perfect Eden. That's how the world is, and then once in a while, some bad kind of sneaks in. And we need to deal with it, you know, and and yeah. how can this be where it seems the stuff you're writing and, and you know, more modern crime fiction, depending on, you know, a Michael Connelly book, whatever. It's like, it's more like the whole thing is corrupt and there's some good in there woven in there, but let's see where it all goes and where, it, you know, we shouldn't be that shocked when we see these things you know, right. we are all just a click away from that. And we, we do have this fault line and, you know, as Augustine would say, we all have these disordered loves and it's, and they're all aimed in the wrong places. You yeah. Know? And yet we're a, but, but I think what, what's hard for me is when I read, you know, what would I call, um, Christian crime novels, or if you want to call them that, or that, that have more of a kind of a religious bent to them is they tend to kind of sand off the rough edges. You know, they, they tend to, uh, create a world a little bit where you said in your article create a world that's not realistic it's not how it really is you know yeah and, and maybe and of course it's fiction it's you know you're writing film it's it's obviously it's extreme and we're going to take the extreme cases but it's still there and it's like we but we the best place we can do the best thing we can do is to acknowledge it um that you know and the rain still falls on the just and the unjust you know um and yet grace is still for all which is obviously the good news and, and amazing at the same time because it's hard to live in those tensions, you know, when we see those things and we experience those, those pains and those hurts and those real, real life, you know, um, things in the heart and things in
1: the world. Um, I think the difficulty with, you know, so if we draw a line between the kind of fiction you're talking about, that, that doesn't ring true and, and um, the better sort, it's, it's really about truth telling, you know, and, and I think this is the case for, you know any artist, regardless of of his creed, um, his duty, his job is to tell the truth hmm. and in fiction and any genre of art you know the the way you go about it may differ but the the fundamental task is is telling the truth about the world and what is unsatisfying about you know that sort of pollyanna ish um, propagandistic storytelling is that it's really just not telling the truth. You know, if, if I were to write a story where everyone who did bad things had bad things happen to them and everyone who did the right thing had good things happen to them. The only people that would ring true to would be kind of sentimentalists who who don't have a, a, a right view of reality. And it's, you know, easier maybe to see that shortcoming when you're looking at, let's say, uh, you know, air quotes, evangelical fiction, or, you know, Flannery O'Connor and Mystery and Manners would talk about kind of the kitschy Catholic novel in a similar kind of way. But I think this is also the case with any sort of ideologically driven fiction, like where there's an agenda, like there's a truth you have to come to and uh nothing that happens in the story is going to shake that that uh that conclusion and so where we're more likely to see it now kind of in in our popular fiction is just like any like the political stuff you know where where it's not so much about telling the truth about experience as it is um sending the right messages mm-hmm. through the fiction
0: mm-hmm.
1: You know, and so I think that in in some respects, like it's it's always striking to me that, you know, you can read very different kinds of authors, but they all come to essentially the same conclusions about reality, mm-hmm. and 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 they're pretty conventional mm-hmm. conclusions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
0: I mean, one of the things I I, you know, I get depending on who you are, but. Um, I've always enjoyed Stephen King and um and a lot of his his non-horror stuff, which actually I probably enjoy more. Um, you know, the body, his novella about, you know, stand by me, the movie, and Shawshank and mm-hmm. um, you know, some of those stories that that aren't necessarily horror, but it's interesting because of his Methodist background growing he grew up in the church. Uh there's actually a, a guy who wrote a kind of an academic work based around his work and kind of the theological underpinnings of his work and pulling some of that out from his different novels and things is he does come to a lot of those same conclusions like you read it and you go yeah maybe he's not a churchgoer necessarily or but you know he obviously understands good and evil and and, and the world is a dark place and there are yeah. things that scare us you know and uh and and quote unquote good people do bad things. <laughs> and
1: yeah. yeah. You know, and yet you know, another it, example of that would be somebody like Paul Schrader.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and you look at at you know his films and you know you can see his sort of uh, Christian Reformed Church backgrounds. Yep. And uh, I'm sure you know his once upon a time Sunday school teachers would be scandalized by the content. <laughs> but but at the same time, you know, you can recognize uh, Put it this way, like like the ideas are treated with respect and weight in a way that they typically wouldn't be by someone who's just kind of like just doing the conventional thing, Mm -hmm. you know, not asking hard questions about the reality of the world, but just kind of, you know, writing the way we write to sell books Mm And so, you know, I've wherever the source, you know, Christian or non-Christian or, you know, whatever, I've always appreciated that kind of willingness to, to encounter the world and kind of try to make sense of it without resort to, well, this is just what people like me are meant to believe. And so let me just parrot these conclusions. Sure.
0: Yeah. And it becomes that forced kind of, you know, every book has to end with someone, you know, coming to faith, you know, or the, somebody always winning in the end, especially Christian film, you see that very, you know, overtly, or just these very kind of preachy moments like, Hey, this is yeah. what I believe in. And it, we, and it goes on the other side. You mentioned earlier, it's like, you know, in the world, it's like, what's my political view? What's my view on this? What's my, you know, I'm going to make sure I preach that and get that in there. And you know, where I stand rather than, just telling the truth or, you know, right. telling it through a character's eyes or, or lenses. I mean, C.S. Lewis, you know, they asked him, you know, what is what's your goal in your books? Is it to convert everybody to get your Christian worldview across? And he always said it's to first tell a good story. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the the role of a Christian or a non-Christian is just to just tell tell a truthful, good story. Tell it with excellence. All of the other th- obviously his worldview comes through in in the Chronicles of Narnia and, and other books, but but I don't think he was sitting down going okay now here's the part, part where I have to convert everybody, <laughs> you know, he's he's right. trying to tell the story through the lens of these characters and letting them go where they need to go, you know. Yeah, and I
1: think there's something really um, like it. It has to do with what you know we might think of in, under the heading of like the doctrine of work or something, you know. Where there's uh there's a kind of uh, you know, sanctified approach to work that would say the way that you do your, uh, let's say your, your, your carpentry work in a Christian way is that when people come in for carpentry, you also evangelize them or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that, or, or you just conduct your business with, you know, high moral standards or something like that. And it's interesting, like someone like Dorothy Sayers, you know, would say that the most important thing the church could say to the carpenter is make good tables, right and so i think you know c.s lewis who obviously as you know wearing his apologetics hat would be very concerned about articulating you know the the truths of of christianity in a way that made sense to people when it comes to writing a novel he wants to write the novel well like he wants to make a good table and and that sort of propagandistic approach doesn't make good novels. It's just not what the form is good at. And so there are definitely novels that preach and, and definitely, you know, they don't need to be Christian in order to do that, but they're not the best novels. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's uh, every artist ultimately has to deal with the um, the fact that that the world is bigger than your ideology, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and so I think there's a, um, just, you know, speaking specifically of artists of faith, there's something worthwhile in seeing the largeness of, let's say the, so the largeness of God as distinct from like the size of your understanding, you know, or your, your, ideology or whatever you know and i think that's um that gives you the confidence let's say to explore and do so without anxiety that that you know i can't go there because what if i don't reach the right answers you know and that's something i think as a culture right now we all of all of the arts are laboring under that pressure to only reach the right conclusions. And so it's, it's certainly not a struggle unique to to artists of faith. And um, and we could all benefit from kind of a, a heightened sense of, of, of let's say the, the I wanna say the autonomy of art, but at least it's distinct needs and like its, it's right to be its own thing and not just like the handmade of politics.
0: Yeah, there, there's this, uh, I think Sayer talks about it and, and uh, I've even heard Schaefer, Francis Schaefer talk a little bit this way too, but it's kind of the, he talks, he touches on it in like the art, art in the Bible and um, Sayer's has some other articles and books that she talks about, but it's it's kind of like the intrinsic value of work. There, there There's mm-hmm. this thing when you make the table and it's a well-made table and someone goes home and enjoys it with their kids sitting around there having dinner. There, There's no, there's no, really practical it's just it's a table but it's beautiful and it's it doesn't really have any functional thing in the world but and there's things like art there's things like books there's things like i mean that's why you know you get criticized as a christian why would you read fiction what a waste of time there's kind of like an intrinsic value to it that you can't put i mean i hate to use the word you know price tag on it but you, you you really can't it it when you go to an art gallery, it's like you stand in front of that, that piece of art and it, it does something to you. It moves you in some way. And and yet it's not, okay, now I need to go home and start a political rally or write a book. You know, it's it's just to enjoy that thing for, and I don't know exactly what it does to me, but it does something in me. It creates awe and wonder. I don't know. But it's it, it does point to almost what Lewis says. You know, if, you know, these things that are temporary point to, you know, or create this, you know, kind of, void in us that it just never really satisfies everything we need. We must be created for another world. And I think there are these little gifts that we have to go. And I think the novel can do that. It it can kind of bring you to say, there's more, you know, there's, there is hope, um, even in the darkness. Um, so when you were, uh, kind of wrestling through kind of your calling, vocation, whatever language you want to use, writer, seminary, pastor, um, you know what were some of the conversations you were having with yourself or with God or with uh, your community, your family, your wife, uh, just as when you're getting published? Like, okay, I got these novels in me. I have these ideas. I'm gonna, you know, you wrote a trilogy, I believe, um, uh, of crime novels. There might be others out there. I'm not sure at this point, but, um, but you know, did, were those were those ideas already kind of in, set in place? Did you have them done? Here, I want to pitch these to publishers. How, what was kind of your your decision process when you were thinking about just you know, I'm a Christian, I'm an, I'm an artist, I'm a writer. Uh, Where do I want this to go? How, what does the audience, you know, talk us through kind of that journey, um, if you will. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I, as a writer, I focus almost entirely on, like, you might say, like the crafts side of things and not on maybe the outside the project thoughts. So I don't think about audience and I don't think about, uh, you know, the, what really anything beyond just what would make this a great story? What, you know, what am I um, trying to do here? And, And I often don't know the answer to those questions in advance. The process of writing is a process of discovering those things. And so, uh, every novel I've written has been a little bit different. Each one, I feel like I had to learn the process over again. And after the work was finished, I could kind of look back and sort of understand what I'd done, but that's, it, I didn't get there that way. And I think that's, you know, one of the interesting things about like the whole pedagogy of writing is that the way writing is taught is often very different from the way it's done. Mm-hmm. You know, and you get books about you know how to be a writer and stuff like that. And it's like, well, here's a chapter on character, and here's one on conflict, and that sort of thing. And and I don't think anyone, at least not no one who's who's uh, really good at their craft, thinks of doing the work that way you know you don't sit there and say let me come up with a list of characters you know okay let me come up with some conflicts you know in that sort of thing it's a much more uh organic process and yet when you know a successful writer has to teach a class about writing you fall back on the books about writing not on your own experience you know and so for me i i never thought about genre I never thought about audience. I never thought about like, you know, is this, you know, a Christian book or not, that that sort of thing. Um, I was just channeling my influences and and the things I was interested in, into a story that fascinated me and trying to kind of, uh, you know, the way that, Mahler says a symphony should contain the world. That's, you know, I was trying to build a, a little world in, in each book. And so after the fact I would kind of find these things out. So I, I guess my, I, I'm really good at writing novels that, that like editors love, but no one would publish. And so I've done several, of these like books that I loved and thought were great. And then other people have read them, though, this is amazing. But when it comes to actually getting a publisher to publish them, it's like, yeah, this, no one can explain, you know, you need mm-hmm. like easy tags, but what books like that do is they open doors. And so, you know, the, you're, you're sort of crazy. No one can quite identify what genre it is. Book, you know, can't be published, but, in the process, you meet the people who, you know, would let you write something else. And so for my crime novels, I wasn't pitching a series of crime novels or anything like that. Um, the, the book that I had written was, was very different, but it opened a door and I basically, you know, was given the option of, um, pitching a series of books Mm -hmm. that I hadn't written. And so I pitched it and the publisher went along with it and none of it existed. And so then I was sort of on this journey of writing these books and figuring out what they're going to be and that sort of thing. So that's pretty risky for the publisher and and for the author as well. And, and, um, you know, I mean, we, we butted heads on some things as a result, but as as it happened, I mean I just ended up being able to write books that I don't think if I had sat down and sort of come up with the pitch, I ever would have ended up with these books, but um, but they emerged out of the process and I was really pleased with with what happened. I think they ended up being much better than anything I would have, you know, written a proposal for.
0: Well, You know, this is probably unintentional, but I think you just gave a lot of people some really good advice of just, I think of any work you're called to. I mean, you you don't, as much as people think, well, I have this, you know, five-year plan, 10-year plan, 20-year plan. This is what I'm called to. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work towards it. And that that can happen, obviously. Uh, But it is the kind of mysterious, mystical process of where do these stories come from? Where do these characters come from? You know, why do they need to be on the page? And, you know, why do they go here and there and do whatever um, where you don't feel like I have to, I have to force it. Or I'm uh, I've heard a, a writer. I, I enjoy, he, he always says, don't bring the writing room, you know, into the creative room. Don't bring the business hat into the, you know, the writer hat, because you're going to mess the whole thing up. It's like, let it be what it needs to be. Don't be thinking about audience and, you know, who's going to publish it and market it and all that. I mean, that's, even if you get to that point, that comes way later. Um, But I appreciate you saying that because I think that's, like you said, the books we all read, really, they're just, especially writing books, they're on productivity. You know, how do you get X amount of words a day and how do you get published? And, but it's, it's, it. you can't write a book on how to really do it because it's, you know, write a list of characters okay I mean that's that's fine but I mean I, I don't most authors you even hear interviewed they don't talk that way they it's like I don't know this one you know I mean I, I was just listening to uh, Lee Child the other day and he's talking about the Reacher series and he's like mm-hmm. I had this one line I just got fired from my TV show job I had I had this one line in my head I had to make some money and that was the start of my first book my first novel and it was just this uh, it was like a ba- uh, th- uh, something about uh, dragging a body <laughs> through the uh, mm-hmm. Through, through the dirt or something and that was it that's all he had and then i mean jack reacher came out of that and you know 22 novels later he's doing okay um but but it's like yeah there's no there was no five-year plan there was no you know i gotta write this book about this wanderer who you know doesn't have a wallet and who does, you know yeah uh, it, it it just comes later that that all comes later and i think that's i mean that's why i enjoy writing because i you just never know what's gonna what door is going to open up or where it's going to take you and and then later, like you know I look back on an early book I wrote that was really about the loss of our second child who died and and there was a character that was going through the same thing, and I realized actually, I was writing about myself, you know dealing with you know your own pain of the loss of a child and, and how that affects relationships and other things and um, and the struggle and that and the doubt and that and the fear and that um so yeah it's it's just interesting how you know I mean we can say God uses all of that you know for probably us more than anyone else that reads it um So, um, so I've heard you, you say this a couple of times, uh, just the, the challenge of, okay, now you're pastor guy, uh, crime novel guy. I mean, you got to tell me some stories of people coming, you know, into your church and realizing like, oh yeah, I read your book or, um, you know, aren't you writing books about people getting killed and stuff how do you you know open up to you know galatians too? you know it's like how how does that um what has been kind of your way of kind of navigating some of those waters because obviously we live in online world and social media world where it's
1: not hard to find information sure. on people and you know yeah you know, you know i th- i think it's it's interesting because th- there's no like i've never run into you know people who are like oh i i find this appalling i i would never you know, want a pastor who wrote crime novels. Mm-hmm. I think it's more intriguing to people than, than anything. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's always interesting too, like, like the, the people who will read them versus the people who don't. And so, I mean, there are people that, um, you know, I, I will meet for the first time and they've, they've read all my books and that's the sort of thing There's other people I've known for years and, and they don't have a clue right. what I've written. And so it's uh you know the the prophet is never respected in his own country. I, yep. I think there's there's a no. uh, there, there's certainly no like all your illusions of you know specialness and celebrity and that sort of thing don't really uh, bear out in everyday reality. But um, I think you know just my my approach, I guess, is. More literary, you know, people would say, you know, lots of storytelling and sermons and that sort of thing, and and I think uh, as a writer, you probably have an interest in in human motivation and psychology and that sort of thing. That as as a as an exegete, as an interpreter, it, it colors the way that you will. Um, address a text, you know, and I think it's um, there's a sort of writerly way Mm -hmm. of preaching a sermon that might be a little different from uh, a more analytical, um, you know, scholarly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. approach. But, um, but yeah, I, I think because the, the theological interests and, 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 and the ideas that have driven me in writing are the same as drive me in ministry there's not any inconsistency there you know it it's um, you know surprisingly much less awkward than than it probably should be i i mean i i remember one time having a conversation before a church service and someone came up to me and, um, like started the conversation with, um, I I've thought of a way that you could kill that person that we were talking about the other day. And, and I thought, well, that would be an interesting conversation to overhear. You know, if you just <laughs> right. showed up for the first time and people at church are talking about, you know, plotting murder and stuff. But, um, But of course, and and that's never of any value to me because nobody dies creatively Mm -hmm. in my books. Everybody dies in mundane sort of the ordinary ways. You die. Not there are no icicle daggers or exotic poisons or anything like that to to need to work out. But but yeah.
0: Well, you know, you tapped into something about you know human motivation. It's interesting. I I I think I mean pastors of all people have a front row seat into human motivation and i mean i've been doing this for 20 years and you know counseling hardships you know pain loss suffering i mean you name it and it's like those those real things make it into your books and it's not you know and if they mess with me i they're gonna get in there and get killed in my book too but no but um but but it's 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 i want to say it's easier to do that but when you've you've been confronted in real ways with real loss and it could be, you know, unemployment, it could be, but it could also be death and it can be cancer and it can be, you know, you name it. Um, when you read a, you know, Harry Bosch novel, you know, Mike Connolly, really what I love about those books has nothing to do with who gets killed and the action scenes and all that. It's, it's how Harry Bosch responds to different problems and most good books, that's what we read them for. It's like we they did this this study years ago as a like what are the common threads for best selling books and it was, you know, they categorized what what were the thing you know, and you would think it would be, you know, the gunfight and all this, and it was actually very ordinary things. It was relationships, romance, going to work like those things resonate with us because that's what we do every day um you know how would i respond to the death of a loved one how would i respond to conflict at work how would i you know and you see that on the page and that's relatable and i think that's what you're tapping into about you know human motivation and that's the interesting part for me and probably for you too and most writers it's it's how why do they do what they do how are they going to respond here um what makes them unique you know and then you and then you can bring out obviously the the dark side the light side you know that we all wrestle with um we don't always make the right choices um and you know stephen king always says character first i mean when you write a book he's like i don't plot out books that's like i just start with a character and see where they need to go and that's kind of you know then another character shows up and we see where they want to go and you know that's kind of the the beauty of it all um and yeah it's interesting
1: to me like like there are two kinds of reactions to my books that have fascinated me. Uh, The reaction of pastors and the reaction of cops.
0: Hmm.
1: And in both cases, I can think of, you know, readers who deeply identified with the protagonist in my books and saw like a not that not that their lives were the same, their work was the same, but there was something about his puzzling, you know, something about his sort of way of working through the problems of life that they identified with and, and could see themselves in. And I had worked very hard to create a sense of verisimilitude, you know, to, to, to have these crime novels be convincing and and. And feel authentic. Um, and so for me, like the kind of feedback I loved was, uh, you know, having a, a police officer ask me, you know, well, where, you know, what department were you with? Assuming I had to have some kind of law enforcement background to have written what I'd written. And that authenticity to me was, was thrilling. But what like the authenticity that that made that work was not uh, like procedural. You know, it wasn't, um, you know, because yeah, when you described slapping on those handcuffs, that's exactly what it's like. And people just don't, under, you know, it wasn't anything like that. It wasn't getting the names of the forms right. It was something about being the person in that position. And, and so ironically, uh, the very same thing, that would convince the the cop that you must have been, you know, like him uh, is the thing that the pastor identifies with too. Huh. Even though, you know, completely different mm-hmm. set of experiences, but there's just something about the, the lived experience of the character mm-hmm. that you connect with that that, that has the reality to it. And I think that's, you know, that's what separates the kind of fiction that develops in that sort of organic, artistic way from the kind that is, um, let's say, pursued more formulaically. You know, because most people who who get into writing do it because they want to be writers, not because they want to write. You know, and there's this idea of what a writer is, and sort of the glamour of it, and and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I think for, for the people who are doing, I I, I, like, let's say like serious work. Um, it's not about being a writer. It's about writing, you know, and there's that sense in which when you're, you're writing and when you've, you've done the work and you look at the pages, if nothing happens after that, like if, if that work, goes into a drawer or a shredder and has no life afterwards um, you still did it you still experienced it and and you want to kind of do it again you know and so I think the when you bring that to it 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 is conveyed like there's just a process where, where the reader gets that and and it's the reason why like a very poor writer from a craft standpoint, pouring his whole self into something, it communicates somehow to the reader. And we find ourselves, you know, like, I love this book, even though I know objectively it's badly written, you know, and this is not, it's not a great book. And yet it, it connects, you know, deeply with me. And I think that's part of that, sort of creative process that's really hard to quantify or to teach, uh, analytically, but it's, it's essential to, to what writing is. That's really good.
0: That's really helpful. So I don't want to take your whole day. Uh, but I do want you to mention your other project, uh, Bible design blog, uh, cause I find that fascinating. Uh, so, so give us a little synopsis. What, what is that, uh, project? Yeah. What are what you so, working
1: on? In in the in the ancient world, before desktop publishing, uh, typography was done. Uh, so we're talking
0: like early ni- '90s. What are we talking here? Yeah, in, okay.
1: in the late 1980s. If you can <laughs> think back that far. My first job was uh, as a typesetter on an old uh, Mergenthaler Linotype machine, and I was always fascinated by typography and and print and all of that sort of thing, and. Because I'd grown up in the church, you know, I was familiar with the Bible, but I'd really never connected those two ideas, like, like that you could design a book and that the Bible is a book that somebody designed. And eventually those two streams crossed, and I started thinking about the Bible as a design project. And, and it's it's probably the most complicated design project of any. Uh, at least of any sort of, let's say, popular book that people are familiar with. And a lot of the uh, things that that have come to be hallmarks of Bible design, like, you know, tiny print in two columns, verse numbers and references everywhere, all of the, the different apparatus, all of those things came later. You know, they weren't present in, in the original text, and they're not They're helpful from a scholarly standpoint. It's great if you want to look up verses, but they actually distract from the act of reading. And so I, over time, saw that the way people read the Bible was influenced by the way the book was designed. And because the book was designed kind of like dictionaries are, uh, that's how people use them. You know, a dictionary is a book for looking things up. And the Bible is designed like a book that's for looking things up. And so that's the way people used them or, or, you know, often did. And they were kind of hard to just sit down and read the way you would an ordinary book. And so kind of influenced by thoughts like that, I just started writing about the the design of Bibles and the manufacture of Bibles, because at the time we were sort of, uh, You know, Bibles had once been made, you know, printed on India paper and sewn bindings and all sorts of interesting, you know, leather bindings and stuff. And Bible publishing was sort of the pinnacle of publishing. But at the time that I started writing about this, Bibles were basically cheaply made uh, things that, that sort of had a, you know, lipstick on a pig sort of external fanciness to them, but were in fact cheap, you know, they were glued together. People would say, Oh, look, my Bible's falling apart. It's a sign of my piety. And you're like, no, it's a sign of how cheaply made this thing <laughs> was, you know, right. but you paid a lot for it right. because you paid for a perception, not a reality. So anyway, um, those two tracks, kind of how the book is designed on the inside, but also how it's made on the outside were sort of what I started writing about and eventually became an advocate for more reader friendly Bibles, so Bibles whose typography uh, you know is is more like a novel and less like a dictionary, mm-hmm. so that they're they 're easier to read and 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 like easier to read in a sort of deep and sustained way mm-hmm. you know where where you 're not constantly pulled out and saying, "Oh well, I finished the chapter, time to stop right. or you know right. whatever so um, yeah so in 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 the since I began we've had a kind of renaissance in, in Bible publishing. And so, you know, we went from, you know, I really felt at the beginning like a chronicler of things past and now, you know, we've got kind of an embarrassment of riches when it comes to reader friendly well-designed Bibles. And um, yeah, it's been, been a wonderful thing to see. Yeah.
0: There's a, uh, a new ver- uh, ESV, I think, version, or it's kind of like a reader's Bible that mm-hmm. is really meant to be a kind of one page, yeah. you know, immersive experience where you don't have all the extra right. verses and chapters. And, and that's that. the kind
1: of thing that, that my blog was sort of pushing for. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. so, so the advent of those kinds of editions was mm-hmm. was uh, very welcome. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and it is, it's, it's one of those things where you, you read the Bible if you're a Bible person and you don't think about those things and you don't think about how verses and chapters affect your reading experience. You know, Oh, I did my, you know, chapter of the day or, um, or, and then you go to seminary and you realize, Oh, some of these, you know, it shouldn't be broken off here. It should be broken off there. Right. And there's debates on that. And um, I, I remember 50, about 15 years ago, the, I think it was a, the message Bible. One of the versions that came out, they kind of got rid of all the, um, Chapters and verses. I mean, it was actually the full text. I think it old and new Testament um, And just to read it in that way just as a reader as a you think of an oral tradition of just someone mm-hmm. getting up and reading a scroll like rather than You know going what it right. verse three and, and like you said, yeah, it's helpful to know where things are but um, But but I think there can be different kinds of reading that we should kind of engage with um, Yeah, and I think
1: you know, it's it's um, For the the literature students uh, you don't need an editor to go in and and make artificial chapter and verse breaks and numbers and that sort of thing in, for example, you know, like your favorite 19th century novel, right? You don't need someone to go and take, you know, Thomas Hardy and add verse numbers so that you can mm-hmm. easily reference things. Right. And you know, people discuss books in profound ways all the time that don't have this apparatus, and you do it through a familiarity with the story uh oftentimes even with that that sort of incredible memory thing where you can picture where on the page this mm-hmm. passage is that yep. you're looking for and those tools for for familiarity with with books that are well loved i think in some ways are are more advantageous to like a a reader of scripture than than these artificial ones so of course, it's, it's super helpful to be able to say, you know, turn to Matthew chapter five, now look at verse three mm-hmm. and, and, and to be able to quickly orient yourself. It's actually not that much harder to say, you know, take a look at this chapter and see the part where he says this and look right after that, you know, that's what we would do with any other book. And so I think people, especially who've grown up sort of with these, these, um, uh, apparatuses think that that without them, the Bible would be, you know, unfamiliar and impossible to navigate. Mm-hmm. But you spend a little bit of time with a reader-friendly Bible and you realize, wow, those crutches are not as necessary and maybe not as helpful as I thought they were. They might, they might be standing in the way of my sort of familiarity with the text. And so not to push it too far. I mean, I think obviously there's room for all sorts of different editions and I'm not suggesting that we, take all the, the two column verse by verse Bibles and pile them up and shred them or anything. But we have, like I say, an embarrassment of riches. So, so we might as well have room for printed Bibles that were just made for reading.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, especially now on the day of, you know, digital editions where, you know, you're, the Bible is on your phone and you can access all that stuff so easily. If you're going to have something printed then it might as well be optimized for reading because it'll never be as good a reference work as your digital one.
0: Sure. Well, and I could be wrong, but I think before the 1300s, there weren't chapter versus reference. So, I mean, for majority of, you know, the people had access to the scriptures. I mean, we didn't, have chapters or verses i mean that was not a <laughs> you know that was not right. a, that's a luxury we have now but we just think that's how it always was um but it's interesting because there have been there's studies you know where they're talking about the kindle versus print books and things um or whatever device you read on but it, it is a different experience the way you read Definitely. digitally than print um even the way your eyes you know the geeky studies on where your eyes go and you know digital versus print and how you experience the you tend to skim more with digital and you know um Which isn't always bad, but it just is. I mean, it's just, there's something with your brain that shifts when you're looking at a screen versus something. I
1: think it affects, so it affects the kind of thing you produce for it. So, you know, right now, you know, what's really popular is to write books with the intention of, you know, they're going to be on Amazon. I'm going to do a new one every six weeks or whatever. And and they're mainly going to be consumed as Kindle downloads. And when you have that idea in your mind of, of how it's gonna work, I think it, it changes how you would write a book like that. You know, and, and you're conscious in some ways, especially, you know, for a sophisticated writer, you're conscious of the way that, that people won't, let's say, put up with certain kinds of writing as they're kind of doing that mm-hmm. skim. And, uh, and so you optimize what you're doing for the medium, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, um, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's something to keep in mind if you are then creating a print edition, like we think differently, like some books almost feel not worthy of that. You know, like like there's some books I would happily consume via Kindle and feel no need to have a yep. physical copy. In fact, it's probably better that no one can see that I have read this book. <laughs> Whereas there are certain books that feel like they deserve Mm -hmm. to exist and, and be interacted with physically. And Mm so, I mean, clearly, you know, the Bible is, is, is one that, that you probably want to have digitally and physically Mm -hmm. and kind of experience the best of both worlds. And so it just changes the, the question of physically what does it need to be? Because it used to be, you know, if you said you were going to take all the chapters and verses out and, you know, all the apparatus, you know, well, what would I do with this Bible? You know, <laughs> how would I use it when I go to church? And I need to look things up or, you know, whatever. Um, and now a lot of that is that anxiety is gone because people are like, oh, well, I would just look at my app. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't need, you know, to have all of these notes and all of this stuff physically in this big brick of a book to carry around it's big enough as it is, I could just have all that stuff as an app on my phone and then physically have a book that's actually optimized to, to read the text. You know, so that's been an interesting, you know, with all the doomsaying about the death of physical books and all yeah. of that that happened a few years ago, it's just been interesting to see that, yeah. you know, the the rise of digital books to an extent has has sure. opened the door to, uh, at least nicer physical books being a part of people's lives.
0: Yeah, that it's that Revenge of Analog book. Have you heard about that yeah, one? Yeah, it's sure. It's kind of this cultural movement of people actually going back to pen and paper and board games and right. Uh, print books, you know, old school. I mean, how, yeah. who cares about a print book? What are you, dinosaur? You know? Yeah. And I, yeah. I think, you
1: know, theologically, that's one of those things, you know, you, you start thinking incarnationally and what does it mean to be an embodied human? And it makes sense that, that those sort of tools of embodiment would have a value to us that's not, like, it, it isn't just utilitarian, you know that that we might still want to have these tangible things, and 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 that we interact with them differently than we would with with paper. Yeah,
0: and I think you know it's interesting because I think we're probably around the same age. We, have you know, if you take music for example, you you know, I try to explain to my kids there's this thing called a tape, you know, mm-hmm. and a VHS, and they're just like what what are you talking right. about? You know, not everything right. was just streaming. And it's like, when you've seen the evolution from vinyl to eight track, to tape, to CD and all that, like you do lose some of that immersive experience where you'd sit with a record, read the liner notes, smell yes. it, you know, and, right. and, and go through the, all the tracks Well, now, when it's just a file on a MP3 player or your iTunes or on your phone, it's like, it is a different experience. Right. Um, and it, whether that's yeah, good or bad. I don't know, but it just is, you
1: know? Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's not a, it doesn't have to be like a, a either or, right? Yeah. Because, right. you know, you, you can have a stack of records, but still feel like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have digital music too.
0: Right. And, exactly. and
1: you make choices like what would I, I mean, I find myself doing this, you know, what, what am I content to only experience digitally and what would I actually like to have right. yes. on vinyl, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, music, never, I yeah. never asked myself what would I like to have on cassette tape though. Yeah, no. No,
0: I don't think I have any left but or anything to play with. But um, yeah, it, it, it that artifact thing is, like you are saying something that has weight or something that's important. you know, again, a file that's, oh, this book's fine. It's a fiction book, read it, you know, move on. But right. it's like, yeah, something that really moves you or something you want to come back to or, you know, there there is something to that.
1: So I think where these things all come together, like the writing thing and the design thing and, and all of that. So uh, when my third crime novel before it was published but after it was written um, i typeset an edition of it myself did it exactly how i wanted it printed the signatures sewed them together and bound them in a a limited series um, handmade by the author Uh, which isn't as great as it sounds because they look like they were handmade by a monkey who wasn't that talented not not one of the smarter monkeys but but, uh, but it was kind of the combination of those things, because I was conscious of that very thing that, that a lot of people were reading these books, you know, as, as ebooks. and even the physical edition was not something I could entirely control. And so I wanted to have that kind of um, like every aspect of the work is exactly as I would have it, at least within my ability to to get it there. And it was, it was for similar reasons to what we're saying, you know, it wasn't to sell and it wasn't to, to, you know, there was nothing practical about it, but it was just from my own satisfaction for this, this book to exist in the world in exactly this way. And um, yeah, so I still, you know, years later, have several of the, the book blocks, most of the ones I bound and ended up giving away to friends, but but I kept a few of the, the old book blocks and I'll go back and look and say, well, I'm surprised. I thought this was good typography back then, but, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's all the obsessions coming together. Yep.
0: I love it. Well, Mark, we've, uh, we've gone to and fro and uh, I really appreciate you, you coming on the show and talking My pleasure. all kinds of fantastic things. Uh, but before we go, I did want to say uh, where can people find you? And also what are you working on right now?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you can find my books, wherever find books are sold, just uh, search my name on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, whatever. Um, what I'm working on now, uh, ironically, uh, screenplays and novels. I've got uh, different kinds of things on the fire. And finally kind of working on, uh, I've been doing this pastoral interlude and a and part of that was, was uh, finishing an MDiv and, stuff like that all that's behind me so now i've kind of picked up the fiction stuff and i've started working on a new novel so i'm excited about that
0: well yeah let us know when it when it comes out and we'll make sure we tell others about it we'll have you on you can talk about it again well thanks mark you have a fantastic afternoon and uh, talk to you real soon
1: all right Bye bye
0: Well, there you have it. Me and Mark Bertrand. Thank you, Mark, for coming on the show. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Uh, I know it was jam-packed with a lot of stuff, but I really just appreciate his perspective on the juggling act of writing and pastoring and doing other things. Uh, And I think we all can relate to that. Uh, And and I'd want to encourage you today, uh, if you are have this deep desire to say i have to be full-time i have to you know write books full-time i have to do this or that maybe you do have a job you hate and maybe you know you're just trying to get out but that's not always always the answer that for some of us making that choice to say i i really do enjoy the the work i do and i don't want to put that pressure on my arc you don't have to uh, there's a lot of different ways to be creative and continue to be creative and it's not always about making money either uh, and so Hopefully you're encouraged by this conversation. Uh, Just a couple things before we go uh, this week. One, uh, if you head over to the website, ryanjpelton.com, I just want to encourage you to sign up for the newsletter. Uh, That'll keep you updated on all the stuff that's going on with the podcast my own writing and other things going on. And uh, so I just want to encourage you to do that. That'd be just a great way to stay in touch so you can kind of know when stuff's coming out. Also, you could also subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this podcast Uh, that will help you uh, listen to the newest and latest updates. And uh, when they come live, hopefully we're launching them weekly at a minimum. Uh, also lastly, uh, if you leave a rating or review on iTunes, that would really help us get the show out in the world as we kind of relaunch this podcast into the world, into the ether, into the interwebs, uh, really appreciate, appreciate an honest, uh, review and you can do that wherever you listen to this podcast. Well, I'm so glad that you came around today to the prolific creator. This is Ryan J Pelton signing off. I just have one thing to say is go make great art with your life. And I will talk to you real, real soon.